You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If Alban Barkley is remembered for anything at all, it's for his final speech. As a junior congressman, then I became a senior congressman, and then I went to the Senate and became a junior senator, and then I became a senior senator, and then majority leader of the Senate, and then vice president of the United States. And why not? The Kentucky local poll liked nothing more than making a speech. And now I'm back again as a junior senator. <laughs> and I am willing to be a junior. It was what he was born for. When he ran for governor of his state, he made an average of 16 speeches a day. He'd talk about anything, almost anything. He spoke for other candidates who didn't like to speak that much. And now, at this time, at 79 years of age, having already served as vice president under Harry S. Truman, Barkley got himself elected senator again. And in 1956, there was a mock convention of students at Washington and Lee University, and they invited him to deliver the keynote address at their mock convention. He accepted and gave one of his classic speeches. He said after all his years in national politics, he had become a freshman once again but that he had declined an offer of a front-row seat with other senior senators. No, no, no. I'm glad to sit in the back row, he declared. For I would rather be a servant in the house of the Lord than to sit in the seats of the Almighty. And then, Alban Barkley collapsed and died from a massive heart attack. Barkley just collapsed as he finished saying, I had rather be a servant in the house of the Lord. It's sad to hear about anyone's passing, but who among us, you know, could even hope to get last words like that? Barkley died the way he lived, a born orator in the time when you needed to be. He loved to speak, and he got ample opportunity to do so. He rose in his career by his ability to speak. Now, Barkley was born in 1877 in a log cabin. Not a, you know, not a, not kind of some hokey campaign invention. He was born in a log cabin. 
His name was Willie Albin Barkley, and he dropped the Willie, as he explains here. Well, these two uncles I called Uncle Willie, both of them. And when I was born, my parents uh, named me Willie Albin. I went by the name of Willie Albin until I got old enough to uh, realize, as I thought, that that was an awkward name, and I changed it myself. Albin William Barkley, and I was never called Willie. Uh, it was in Congress for me, it seemed, even as a boy. Robust and strong as I was to go around with the name of Willie attached to me. So I changed it. This from Albin Barkley, A Life in Politics by James K. Libby. He was born to a tobacco farmer and a railroad worker. Albin is named after his grandfather, Albin Graham Barkley. Albin Graham Barkley had been a native of North Carolina. He eventually moved his family to Tennessee and then to Wheel, Kentucky. The grandfather and his father raised a family growing tobacco. The soils in this area around Wheel, Kentucky were well suited to tobacco, but little else. But unlike other types of farmers, right, who are growing food, tobacco farmers just get money. It's a good cash crop, but they just get the money enough to pay for things else. And if the tobacco crop wasn't good, the price wasn't good that year, you'd have little left over. Tobacco's also a lot of work. And as Libby writes, although the modern child learns to ride a bicycle or operate and play with a dizzying array of electronic gadgets and breakable toys, Albin gained an intimate knowledge of sturdy farm implements. As soon as I was old enough to throw an axe over my shoulder or pull an end of a crosscut saw, my father took me to the woods with him. Why, I... I was never uh, designated, uh, never entitled to be designated as the greatest hog caller that ever came out of the bluegrass. Of course, every farm boy learns to call hogs. And I learned like the rest of them. And there's a, there's a peculiar hog call that uh, is well recognized among farmers. And I indulged in it like every other farm boy, but I was never... How did it go? Uh, well, uh, you start. Uh, I, you can't get this into the into the the, uh, uh, the written page, but uh, you go out there and you have a basket full of corn, and you rattle that corn, and you'll say, "Pig, pig, 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 pig," and you can hear him begin to grunt and squeal and run for a half mile, getting to the. In 1902 was enough money to attend a summer law course in the University of Virginia. Fortunately, in those days, that could be enough to begin, and he started as a prosecuting attorney in McCracken County, Kentucky. The joke was, when he ran for office, he had nothing, and he campaigned by mule. These are the type of stories that grew around uh, Barkley, but he would always say it wasn't true. It was a horse. Served as a judge until 1912, and then was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives as a member of the Democratic Party. Spent 15 years there, before being elected to the Senate in 1926. My old uh, law employer is a partner of Judge Bishop, and the man who had been elected to Congress and defeated Captain W.J. Stone, who was a one-legged old Confederate soldier. Now, he, he rather resented the fact that I, as his stenographer, a few years before, uh, was bold enough to run for Congress. He thought that uh, he ought to go back to Congress instead of me, just a mere boy. And I'd worked for him at $12 a, a month salary. 
Who was this upstart who's uh, trying to go to Congress? Well, when we were winding up the campaign there at home, we spoke out on the courthouse steps at night, and there was an enormous crowd there, a courtyard filled with people. And he was saying something about me, uh, being uh, overambitious. He said uh, he was elected prosecuting attorney here, and we elected him county judge, and now he wants to go to the Congress. And he said if you elect him to Congress, it won't be long till he wants to go to the Senate. And uh, he got some applause uh, with that statement, and I followed him, and I referred to that. I said, well, it is true that I was elected prosecuting attorney here and judge, <clears throat> for which I'm grateful. And it is true that I'm ambitious enough to want to go to Congress. If I weren't, I wouldn't be a candidate. And I said, uh, if after I'm elected to Congress, I see a senatorship lying around loose and looks like it's as easy to get as this race is, I may run for that. When I got a big hand on that, and I was told afterwards that uh, uh, my boldness in, uh, in not denying my ambition and announcing that if something came along, I'd reach out for it, got me a lot of votes. Uh, several people told me they had intended to vote against me, but the way I answered Hendrick made them change their mind. He was a loyal supporter of President Woodrow Wilson, of his agenda, and he learned something from Wilson. He established a strong liberal voting record, and he rose to positions of leadership. He became an assistant majority leader in 1932. Now, Barclay may have contended for the vice presidential nomination in 1944, but as it would turn out, he'd get it a few years later. During the New Deal, Barclay was so respected by his fellow senators that he served with Majority Leader Joe Robinson of Arkansas. They were two very different people. Joe Robinson, who led the Democrats when they were in the wilderness in 1920s, the Republicans were controlling everything in Washington, and then became the majority leader in 1933, was, as many would describe him, kind of a brute animal and a willing to use his strength. Not at all warm and fuzzy. He would use threats. He might cajole with favors. And he knew his parliamentary tactics and would use it to win a fight. He didn't have the patience to kind of win people over to his side. That was left to his assistant, Albin Barkley. Albin Barkley's chance comes when Robinson dies in 1937. But this comes right in the middle of a heated bit of politics between the president, Franklin Roosevelt, and the Senate. President Roosevelt wanted to pack the court to increase the size of the Supreme Court in order to get New Deal legislation through. Albin Barkley supported FDR in that, but Joe Robinson, the majority leader, did not. Nor did Pat Harrison, senator from Mississippi, who was head of the Finance Committee. When Robinson died, it was likely going to be Pat Harrison who would take over. Except for one thing. Pat Harrison didn't support the president, and Alvin Barkley did. Not only did he side with Roosevelt, he spoke out forcefully, defending the president on the Supreme Court issue. It wasn't that he wanted to pack the court, Barkley would say, but that court was definitely blocking the New Deal legislation. Although professing neutrality, Franklin Roosevelt privately threw his support behind Barkley and pressured state Democratic leaders to lobby their senators. See, Roosevelt didn't always have friends 
in the Senate. The Senate is a group of very independent people from the president at times, but he would lobby the state people who were very beholden to lobby their senators to pick Barkley. He also addressed a public letter to my dear Albin. When he did that, it implied his endorsement of the Kentucky senator. After all, he didn't say, my dear Pat, to Pat Harrison. Franklin Roosevelt was influential, one of the most influential presidents in terms of broad public opinion. His vote mattered here. Barclay won the majority leadership by a single vote. And Barclay suffered a bit in this comparison. In fact, the press soon began to taunt him as bumbling Barclay. He led a majority of 76 Democrats and 16 Republicans. That was the situation in the 1930s. There were a few independents. But the Democratic Party was divided between liberal and conservative wings. Barclay couldn't get a majority all the time behind administrative domestic programs till at least World War II hit. It took him a while to earn the respect. I mean, Joe Robinson had been a very good majority leader, so it took some time for Barclay to be able to develop that level of respect. But during World War II, the Senate and the White House were working together. Barclay was winning more votes because the nation was more unified and not, you know, petty political fights weren't that important. And Senator Barclay was one of the big four, the people that would meet in Sam Rayburn's office and discuss things. Vice President Henry Wallace, Sam Rayburn, Henry, uh, House Majority Leader John McCormick. They'd meet regularly with Franklin Roosevelt and map the administration's legislative strategy. Usually, Barclay was on FDR's side. He was leading the president's forces. But in 1944, something happens. Relations between the administration and Congress grown strained during the war, and the chief executive was preoccupied by military and diplomatic affairs. In February 1944, Roosevelt vetoes a revenue bill. He rejects a $2 billion tax increase. He says... Not because it's too much, because it's too little. He declares it a relief measure, not for the needy, but for the greedy. Barclay had worked on the compromises to get this bill through the Senate. It wasn't easy. This isn't the early days of the New Deal, where legislation was easy to pass. Getting a, a $2 billion tax increase was tough. He was incensed that Roosevelt would take to the public to criticize the Senate over this action that he had been instrumental in. He rose in the Senate and urged the Senate to override the president's veto. And then... I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. 
We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. He resigns as majority leader. The Senate's stunned. The press is stunned. Who is this? This is Bumbling Barkley. This is Roosevelt's biggest supporter. The next day, in a sign of unity and confirmation of his leadership, the Senate Democrats get together and unanimously re-elect Barkley as their leader and ask him to come back. Now, what does it mean? He resigned and then now he's back. It really wasn't much more than a day. So it's symbolic, but it's a statement that Barkley's power came from the Senate not from the White House. So while it increased Barclay's respect and his standing as a leader, it also caused tensions with Roosevelt. It's one of the reasons that Harry Truman becomes president, because Barclay does not become vice president in 44, where he was definitely on the list. When his name comes up, Roosevelt says, not Barclay. We had just had that disagreement So in 1945, when Roosevelt dies, it's President Truman and not President Barkley. Doesn't matter to Barkley that much. He works with Truman. He has what Barkley called a catcher-pitcher relationship. The majority leader would say, do this. This will get through the Senate. And Truman, wanting his legislation to get through the Senate, would comply. They had both been senators. They knew each other. So in 1948... Truman decides to run again, but most people think, don't think he has much of a chance. And when the convention meets in Philadelphia in 1948, they call on this great speaker from Kentucky. Republican nominee has announced with characteristic finality that he proposes to sweep from the government at Washington the cobwebs as he swept them from Albany following long tenure of Democratic administration. I am not an expert in cobwebs, but if my memory does not betray me, when the Democratic Party took over the government 16 years ago, even the spiders were too weak from starvation to weave or spin a cobweb in any department of the government of the United States. He lifts the party spirits. He gets the delegates cheering with an old-fashioned, rip-roaring, Republican-bashing keynote address. It is no appeal for the lusts of office. It is no panoply of sophistries. It is the swelling of human breasts 
with pride that God in his wisdom has given us the power and the opportunity to inaugurate a better world and a better society. There's a demonstration that follows his speech. It's so long that there's no question what's going to happen in this convention. Barclay's going to be nominated as Truman's vice president. In fact, President Truman's a little suspicious that he gives this hour-long speech and only mentions him once. Maybe he's trying to become president. Barclay sees all the intrigue happening. Truman's kind of wondering, should I pick Barclay? They go to Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. He turns it down. Barclay's hearing this happening and saying, if I'm going to get the nomination, it'll have to come quick. I don't want to pass around so long. It's like a cold biscuit. Truman agrees to accept Barclay, and he goes out on a grueling speaking tour. Now, we hear about Harry S. Truman's famous train tour on the Magellan as he goes across the country and wins his surprise re-election. Supporting him was a man of 70 years of age. He was making a grueling amount of speeches for someone that age. He made more than 250 speeches in 1948, Barclay did, in 36 states. Some said that he had been too old to run when he was nominated old man Barclay, but the press is noting that he's speaking to almost any audience that will hear him. 1948, as we know, goes to Truman. It's a dramatic upset. And Albin Barclay steps down as Democratic leader and becomes the Vice President of the United States. Although Truman was a little suspicious of him with his actions at the convention, he works with him greatly as a Vice President. And even at different times, Truman calls him the boss. And Alvin Barclay doesn't get credit for it, but he's one of the modern Vice Presidents because Truman, aware of what happened to him for that one month that he was Vice President, doesn't want that to happen to Barclay. Starts including him in meetings, including national security meetings. This is a big deal. Prior to Barclay, the job of the Vice President was to stay in the Senate and preside over it. That's about it. Maybe once in a while, if the president called on you, give your advice. Now, we should talk about, we, we've talked on this series quite a bit about all the things that have been said about vice presidents, usually by vice presidents. But Alvin Barkley is one of the office holders who gave us some of the best sayings. He's the one who told the story constantly about the mother who had two sons. One went to sea, the other became vice president, and neither was heard from again. But it wasn't quite true. Barclay was really the first modern vice president, though he still had one foot in that old office. He still acted as president of the Senate. He still knew all the senators. He did not have an office in the White House, even though he was invited to meetings. He still tended to identify more with the Senate than the executive branch. He was older. Barclay remembered how in 1927 he met with Vice President Charles Dawes, who said, Barclay, this is a hell of a job I have as vice president. What's the matter with it, Barclay asked. Dawes replied, I can do only two things here. One of them is to sit up there on this rostrum and listen to you birds talk without the ability to reply. 
The other is to look at the newspapers every morning and see how the president's health is. That's not the first story we have of future vice presidents talking to vice presidents about the office, yet they seem to keep getting it through history. There's one more way that uh, Alvin Barkley is extremely influential, and um, that is with the very term Veep. In a way, Alvin Barkley is the first Veep. Now, he's not the first vice president. That's John Adams, right? Yes, of course. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. But he is the one that comes up with the term Veep as synonymous for VP, vice president. It is the creation of his grandson, who saw the two letters VP and called his grandfather Veep. The name stuck, and so much so that another innovation for vice presidential history, Albin Barkley is the first vice president to be widely on television, to in fact have his own television show, Ask the Veep, where he'd answer questions from a reporter. During his vice presidency, he made sure he was not entering into a four-year period of silence. He accepted hundreds of invitations to speak at meetings, conventions, banquets, partisan, nonpartisan groups. I like to do it, he explained. I like people and I enjoy the thrill of crowds. I always believed it to be the duty of those who were elected to high office by the people to take government to them whenever and whatever li- by whenever and by whatever legitimate means possible. He traveled by air, and he claimed to spend more time in the air than all his predecessors combined. But the vice presidency, even in this quasi-modern time, didn't take all of his time. And he constantly sought other activities, attending meetings of the Democratic, Democratic Policy Committee, legislative conferences with the president, cabinet meetings he would go to. 
Uh, Senate historian Floyd Reddick estimated, though, that even as he engaged in White House activities, Barclay presided between 50 and 75% of the time. Figure that's really high. You're not going to see Pence. You didn't see Biden presiding over the Senate that often. Barclay also used the vice president's room outside the chamber as his working office. He was proud to occupy the room. He liked to keep a wood fire burning in the fireplace. On one occasion, he tried to use his seat on the vice presidency to help uh, as president of the Senate to help civil rights. And unfortunately, it didn't work. Early in 1949, Senator Scott Lucas of Illinois attempted to amend the rules to make cloture easier, to stop a filibuster, which usually was used against civil rights legislation. At this time in the late 1940s, there are many senators trying. Georgia Senator Richard Russell led the opposition to any rules changes that might favor civil rights. In a procedural move and against the parliamentarian's advice, Barclay ruled against Russell's point of order. But the Senate, by a vote of 41 to 46 nay, failed to sustain his ruling, and the filibuster went through. Some other things happened during Barclay's vice presidency. Truman gave a new coat of arms, a seal, and a flag for the vice president. He also gave the vice president a raise and some more expense money. And an unheard of thing occurs when Barclay celebrates his 38th anniversary of service. President Truman comes to the Senate chamber and presents the vice president with a gavel. Barclay makes a speech and talks about how everyone in the press says that he and Truman gets along so well. Yes, he says. The reason for this is that I have to let him get his way about everything. He serves his four years as vice president and then actually wants to run for president. Now, Truman, as much as he likes Barkley as a veep, is not for this and can't give him the support. He wants Adelaide Stevenson, the governor of Illinois, to take the run. But Barkley does campaign, get votes to convention. Many just felt he was too old to run. But in 1954, as we had mentioned before, he ran for a seat once again in the Senate and beat a Republican incumbent by a pretty comfortable margin. Because he wins, he has another role to play in history. Because he wins this election and one other senator, Democrats take control in 1954 during the Eisenhower administration and appoint a new majority leader, not Barkley but Lyndon Johnson of Texas. Uh, is there any kind of a political dowser or divining rod that you can use to detect when a man says he isn't a candidate, uh, he really is? <coughs> well, I told this story on the President Truman after he became president at a banquet in, in Washington one night when he said that he had never really been a candidate for any office that he ever held, that the office... Uh, uh, caught up with him. I said, well, that reminds me of a Republican from Somerset, Kentucky, when the first Republican governor of Kentucky, William O. Bradley, was elected in 1895. All the faithful party workers came down to Frankfurt looking for jobs. And one man rode a mule down from Somerset, which is 100 miles from the state capital, looking for a job. He stayed around there six months. 
And he got no job and finally spent all his money and disgusted started home. And when he got in the edge of Frankfurt, he met a friend. He said, where are you going? He said, I'm going home. He said, what's your hurry? He said, hurry? He said, I've been down here six months. He said, you know, I've all my life heard that the office ought to seek the man. Let the office seek the man. He said, I've been down here six months looking for an office, and I haven't seen anything of an office going around here looking for a man. But he said, if you do see or hear one going around looking for a man, you tell it that I'm riding out to Somerset Pike and riding damn slow. <laughs> and I said uh, at this dinner where the president, he enjoyed the story very much and it applied. So I said, uh, you may not have been seeking any of these officers you held from county judge up to president, but you've been riding mighty slow when they're out looking for somebody. I want to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Vice President's Podcast. I do another podcast called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. That one is available at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. That's my main cast. Um, so my website's there. If you like the Vice President's Podcast, why don't you give us a review on iTunes or tell someone about the podcast? Thanks very much.